We're going to look at Acts chapter 15 this evening, the Jerusalem Council, a people for his name. Last time we met, we learned that there was a solution being offered to a very obvious division in the church. That division was that the church comprised of people who were both Jews and Gentiles. And from them, from both the Jews and from the Gentiles, God is calling out his own people. And that's a truth that's being confronted very, very early in church history. And it's a problem when many of those people who are being called together onto the Lord are not from a Jewish background. Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians were expected to sit together with no social distancing, worship together on equal terms, eat together, because when you come together as Christians, you have tea and you have something to eat. Should I just reiterate that point? Because you have fellowship together and you don't wear your mask while you're doing it. And you're expected to speak to each other And more importantly than all of that, you're expected to regard each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord, regardless of your background. Now, some people had a solution to this great problem, as we saw last week. And they had travelled up to Antioch from Jerusalem, and they had insisted that to be Christians, faith had to be accompanied by circumcision and obedience to the law. The church, of course, had, as we read in chapter 15, the church had a great discussion about this. Paul and Barnabas, the travelers from Jerusalem, and they had agreed to send Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to challenge the source of that message. So the year is A.D. 49, the first great council of the church is about to begin, and it's called the Council of Jerusalem. I'm not going to go to great depths in this long reading that we had this evening. I want to look at it under three headings, because that's what I've been taught to do. I want to look at the rivals I want to look at the reasoning, and I want to look at the ruling, the rivals, the reasoning, and the ruling of the Council of Jerusalem in AD 49. Let's look first of all at the rivals, the people who were taking different sides. There are basically three different positions being taken at this first council of the church. Three separate theological positions. There were, of course, the representatives from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas and some others. And don't forget that at one stage even Barnabas had wavered at some point and had sat down to eat with the Jews and not with the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 12, um, we read this. 
And we'll start from verse 11. When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Peter had wavered on this question. For before that, certain men came from James. Well, there's one of the sources. He did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissemble likewise with him. So the modern versions say that they partook in the same hypocrisy, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation, with their hypocrisy. Barnabas is on board. And he's now in total agreement with Paul. And they are strongly advocating the message, the simple message, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And they have two arguments. They have a biblical argument and they have the experiential evidence of what the Lord has done. Now we'll look at those two when we come to the reasoning. So that's the first of the rivals at the council, the Antioch representatives. The second is the Judaizers. If you look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 5, we saw a little bit of this last week. There rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, who were these people? Well, it seems that some of the people in the church at Jerusalem had been raised and educated as Pharisees. And, thanks be to God, they had heard about the Lord Jesus, they'd heard his teachings, they'd learned about his atoning death on the cross, they'd met the risen Christ as their Saviour, and they'd been converted. They were now Christians, to all intents and purposes part of the visible church, Genuine, born again, saved believers, just like you and I. But as we saw last time, they were the product of their history, their education, their upbringing, their parentage, their families. So before we condemn them out of hand as being legalists and enemies of the gospel, please let's remember who these people were. Let's remember the strong influences that up till now have shaped their lives. The best way to explain this to you is through a quote. Because I can't sum this up any better than to quote a passage by Lloyd Ogilvie in Kent Hughes' book on Acts. Here's the quote. Think of the stability of the Pharisees' training and Hebraism, his immersion in Mosaic law and tradition, his pride at being part of the chosen people of God. Live in his shoes as we relive the days of his rigorous education and joyous participation in Israel's customs. Feel the loving arms of his parents and family as he is circumcised on the eighth day. 
Catch the awe and wonder he felt sitting at the feet of the elder Pharisees studying the scripture. Identify with the pride he felt when he became a son of the law at his bar mitzvah. Become one with him as he grew to full manhood and earned the revered status of a Pharisee. Consider how he must have burst with satisfaction as he put on the dignified robes of a leader of Israel. These people had a huge influence on their lives. But now they're Christians. We're specifically told in verse 5 that they believed. They're believers. Now you think for a minute what that would have involved. For a Pharisee to believe, to become a believer in Christ is as traumatic and as huge a change as for a fanatical Muslim to become an evangelical Christian believer, born again Christian today. For a Pharisee to become a believer in Christ is to lay aside all his position in the community. For a Pharisee to become a Christian, his family will have disowned him. That Pharisee will never again speak to his parents or be able to visit them. He will never again be able to sit down with his brothers and sisters. He will lose his family inheritance. When that Pharisee said, I believe in Jesus, all his friends have shunned him. It tells us in God's word that when we come to Christ, we must take up our cross and follow him. And this verse, verse 5, is pregnant with that. A man who was of the sect of the Pharisees and believed is such a juxtaposition of cultures that's hard for us to grasp what that man was like. What these men had done. What these men had given up to follow Jesus. They tell you discipleship has a cost. In verse 5 we see people who have paid that price. Who have given up everything to follow the Lord. The Antioch representatives the Judaizers, the Pharisees who believed, and the Jerusalem elders. This last group were the elders and leaders of the church. And the most prominent of this third group was James, who, as you know, was the half-brother of Jesus, who was the author of the book of James, who carried a lot of weight in the council who acted as chairman, if you're a congregationalist, or moderator, if you're a Presbyterian, or archbishop, if you're an Episcopalian. We'll not go any further. 
but he carried a lot of weight in the council. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. After all, he had received a a special revelation of the Lord Jesus. We're even told that after uh, Jesus had appeared to the other disciples, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. The position of the elders in their arguments is best summed up as pragmatism. They seem to want to keep the peace among the brethren. They want to keep everyone on board. They want to continue to bring the Gentiles into the church, yet they want to do so in such a way as to be able to continue their mission among the Jews without any hindrance. So the parties have gathered, and they're meeting in Jerusalem, and the discussions in the council are going to begin. The rivals, they're all there, they're all gathered, they're all ready. Let's see the reasoning. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together for to consider of this matter. We'll see the case for the Judaizers first. These ex-Pharisees' views... If they were allowed to influence the church, then Christ's work on the cross would be in vain. Even though they were Christians, they were sadly disillusioned. They were sadly deluded. Christianity would never be anything, if they had their way, other than a sect of Judaism. Of course, there's many people who are just like them, even in the Christian church. Christians who believe that your baptism saves you not a lot different from these men of the council who believe that circumcision is essential to salvation. Of course, even in evangelical circles, we have legalism, and maybe those within evangelical Protestantism who actually believe that salvation is by grace plus something else. Grace plus your decision. There's a popular one. In our gathering here this evening, we believe and teach and practice that the authorized version of the scriptures is the most accurate version of God's word that we have. That's fair enough. But it's not a precondition for salvation. Grace plus what you were. Grace plus your lifestyle, grace plus your church, grace plus something else. Once we add something else as a precondition of God's grace, then we have problems. Last week, I gave you the illustration of my own grandfather who believed that he couldn't become a Christian because in order to become a Christian, he would have to give up smoking and he would find that really difficult in the flesh. Now, that had to be opposed. Those people were sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. This has to be opposed firmly and vigorously before that false doctrine of grace plus spread like a cancer of the soul in the church. The case for the Judaizers, you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if you're going to be a Christian. The case for the missionaries is found in verse 7. It's given, first of all, by Peter. 
Peter led the way. Peter had already been taught in a vision that God was bringing the Gentiles into the church in Acts chapter 10 and verse 15, when God said to him, What God has cleansed you must not call common. He had already met the first Gentile believer, a man called Cornelius. He'd already visited his home. He'd already eaten and fellowshiped in the home of a Gentile. And yet we're taught, and we see this in that passage in Galatians, that when the Jews from Jerusalem visited Antioch, Peter had acted the hypocrite and had separated himself from the Gentile believers. And Paul was so angry that he openly rebuked him to his face. So now he's suitably chastened. And he's repented, and he takes the lead in presenting the argument from the Antiochian delegation. He remembers his vision. Men and brethren, verse 7. Ye know how that a good while ago God made a choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He reminds them of that incident. And he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion in verse 8. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. He talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion. In verse 9, he talks about salvation being by faith alone for both Jew and for Gentile. Verse 9. And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And he reiterates this in verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord, through Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. See, God is no respecter of persons. This morning in Bally Macaishan, I was doing my end-of-the-year talk, looking back over this strange year that we have had and looking at the sinfulness of mankind and attributing the disasters of this year to the fall of man, the fact that we live in a fallen world and picking out examples of that and putting our hope in God for the future. But at the same time, we were looking at John chapter 1 and verse 13, where it tells us that when we are born, when we believe on his name, we are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Your racial identity does not save you. The fact that you make a decision does not save you. The fact that you belong to a Christian family does not save you. None of those things can get you into heaven. Salvation is by faith alone for both Jew and Gentile. So what's the purpose of the law then? Well, the very people who were demanding that the Gentiles keep the law, were totally unable to keep it themselves. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? 
Goodness me, the Pharisees are asking the Gentiles to obey the law of Moses when they couldn't obey the law of Moses. Because the primary purpose of the law is to make us understand that we can't keep the law. It's to teach us that we are so far short of God's perfect standards that we need a saviour, the only one who could keep the law, Jesus, God's perfect sinless son. And we know that Paul is a great theologian. But why did Peter lead with the biblical reasons for salvation by faith alone? Simply, as one of the original 12 disciples, his voice is carrying weight. But Paul would later say in the book of Galatians chapter 3, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Same argument. So Peter has stood up and he has made the theological arguments for the case for the people from Antioch. And now Paul stands in verse 12. And all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. When Peter's biblical argument has been completed, when the theology is done, Paul, Barnabas and Paul stand up and they give the experiential evidence. They tell the council what the Lord has done among the Gentiles. What stories of saving grace would that have been like? Would he have told them of the events in Cyprus where a renegade Jew, an enemy of the gospel, had been thwarted and the chief official of the land had been saved? Would he have told them about his first missionary journey, about the attempts on his life and the new churches that had been formed right across Asia Minor? Whatever it was, it left them in a stunned silence. Verse 13. After they had held their peace. And that brings me to the last of our sections. For we've seen the rivals. We've seen the reasoning. And now we're going to hear the ruling. What's the decision of the council? And they're sitting in a stunned silence. But they have just heard the wonderful works of God. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. And the law books are consulted. See, there's a more compelling argument than Paul's testimony and Peter's urgent theological plea. The Judaizers want to claim the authority of the law of Moses, but now James is taking them right back to the scriptures to show that it was God's plan right from the very beginning to bring the Gentiles into the fullness of his kingdom. Acts chapter 15 and verse 15. And to this agree the words of the prophets. 
As it is written, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which is falling down and I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up that the residue of men, that's the ones outside the the, the people of Israel, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. God had foreordained that this would happen. James is quoting Amos here. Amos 9 and verse 11 and 12. And he's applying it to what God is doing among the Gentiles. The rebuilding of David's fallen tabernacle is the completion of God's elect through the incoming of the Gentile nations. And in verse 19, the verdict is handed down. Therefore my sentence is that we not trouble them which are from among which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Peter's conclusion here is that no one needs to be circumcised or to keep the law to be saved, but that those who are saved should be mindful of other brothers and sisters. Somebody found that verse really troubling. Verse 20. They said to me, why is it if we believe in salvation by grace through faith and faith alone, and that the decision of the council is that we do not need to be circumcised or we do not need to be under the slavery of the law as were the Jews, then why do we have to abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood? Isn't Peter putting them straight back under the law? No, he's not. He's reminding them that in all churches where the Gentiles and the Jews and people of different ethnic origins are meeting together, that we must be careful not to offend our brethren needlessly because we are all saved. His conclusion is that those who are saved should be mindful of the other brothers and sisters so that in secondary matters, in matters that are not essential to salvation, that they will not cause offence to others. Jews don't eat blood, says Peter. They drain an animal of its blood after slaughter. So basically he's saying, to put it in modern language, to the Gentile Christians, if you're out eating with a Jewish brother or sister, for goodness sake, don't be ordering a raw steak. Make sure it's well cooked. There's no point in doing something that just annoys people, is there? Let me illustrate it to you. A lady was gushing about her son, her only son. And you know what women are like? 
about their wee boy when he's their only son. You know, he's mommy's boy. He'd been brought up in a very traditional church, a church with old-fashioned values. And he'd come to Christ as a young man after years of hearing gospel preaching and Sunday school teaching and going to little children's meetings and CEF meetings. And when he left school and finished his education, his mummy was really, really pleased when he said that he was led to attend a Bible college to study for the ministry. So he obtained a place in a college in Scotland, a very progressive college, a very, in my opinion, very liberal college, but however. On one college holiday vacation recess, he was home in his hometown and was invited to preach at his home church. And his mummy was really, really annoyed with the local church because she felt that her wee boy didn't get the reception that he deserved. He went along to this very traditional church on the Lord's Day morning, wearing a lovely pair of torn jeans and a T-shirt and a long knee-length denim coat. And he brought with him a copy of the message to read from. And those people were used every Lord's Day morning to a preacher in a suit and a shirt and a tie, and they were offended that someone would take their hospitality as an occasion to change or lower their standards. And the woman said to me, I will never go back to that church. Such narrow-minded people. My son preached a great sermon and all they were interested in was the way she was dressed. He was dressed. Now when she'd finished her long story, I asked her why. Since little Tim had known the church so well, since he was brought up in it, and since he was related to a lot of people in it, Why did he go dressed like that in the first place? Was he deliberately trying to make a point? Was he deliberately offending people? Maybe his sin wasn't what he wore, but why he wore it. That's exactly what James is telling the Gentiles. And Paul must later have agreed. For when he wanted to take Timothy with him on a missions trip, which we'll see when we come to Acts chapter 16, he circumcised him. Not because to circumcise him would make him a Christian, for Timothy was already a Christian, but so that it would not cause offense among the Jews. When Timothy, who was half Jewish, when Timothy stood up in the synagogue and began to preach, Acts chapter 16, verse 1 to 3. Let's just look at it for the sake of reference, but we'll talk about it in a few weeks' time. Then he came, then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there. He's already a disciple. Named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess, and believed, but his father was a Greek. Which was well reported of the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. 
him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew that his father was a Greek. didn't circumcise him in order that he would be saved. But you don't deliberately go out of your way when you're a Christian to deliberately offend other brothers and sisters, do you? I was at the end of the matter. Well, of course it should have been, shouldn't it? Um, It wasn't. Um, it's the case that the people arguing by, for salvation by grace and works at Jerusalem, we read in that verse, were genuine believers. They were seeking to understand the scriptures. They were getting it wrong. They, they needed to be rebuked. They needed to be brought into line and taught. But their case was later taken up by false apostles who were trying to lead the church astray after the council had issued its decree and clarified the matter. So in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul has to write to the church in Galatia and say, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And those people, if they did not repent and turn from their wickedness and turn to the Lord, would be cast into the lake of fire. For Paul says in verse 8, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. So the Jerusalem Council has met and has made its decree. It is a decree that is profound. Much more than about Jews and Gentiles getting on together in churches. It's established the principle, the theological truth, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. It is not of works, lest any man should boast.